billion times different than that of earth. You'll notice that its this diameter is only about a third that of earth. And you'll notice beyond all of that, you appreciate something very intriguing. It revolves around the earth, taking some 29 and a half days to do so. And oddly enough, that's the same amount of time it takes the moon to turn once on its axis. As you and I think about what that means, it means this. The same side of the moon always faces the earth. Unless a human has flown in a rocket, no human has ever seen the other side of the moon. The same side of it always faces this planet on which you and I live. Interesting as one gives thought to the character of that, isn't that a testimony to the absolute genius of the God who could put in place the orchestrated mastery of a moon that orbits like that? Isn't it true that Paul said in Romans 1 verse 20, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The more that you and I learn about the moon, the more it testifies of the one who put it in place and the one who upholds its motion by the very nature of His greatness. As you can well tell, the moon even impacts the tides and the waters of this planet. And in so doing, a few of these references in the Bible will turn us to that very realization. Maybe in final character, may we never forget that the moon remains in full control under the power of God. You remember the two scenes with me well. One of them in the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. It was there in that ancient day in the long ago, Joshua prayed that he might have time for the children of Israel to, in fact, enjoy victory over their enemies. When God answered that prayer, you and I remember that it was said the sun stood still for a whole day, but that isn't all the famous text says. The text also said that not only did the sun remain still, so too did the moon. We notice that as God thus stopped the earth in its rotation, it was the case that meant that both sun and moon stood still for that entire 24-hour period, additionally to that which was a day. You'll notice in Habakkuk 3 verse 11, Reference is also made to that same event that centuries later was still a hallmark of the power of God to remain it so that both sun and moon stood still for an additional day. When you think about the nature of what that means, that's not all the Bible says about the moon. Here are some additional features. One of the matters that has been a great interest, of course, has already been that light that does appear as that lesser light to rule the night. We know that the moon and sun are very different, though, in that regard. The sun has its own source of energy. It thus burns with great brightness and provides the earth with an ever marvelous amount of energy at its disposal. The moon doesn't have its own source of energy, you see. The moon reflects the light that the sun emits, and that reflected light is what you and I see also in such brilliance over the course of the evening hours. But isn't it true that reflected light is so often mentioned in the Bible? Look at some of these references. First of all, notice the phases of the moon. The Bible on at least a dozen occasions makes mention of the new moon. 
And thus that was a particular occurrence roughly each month in which the children of Israel were to offer a special homage and a special directed worship unto God in the Old Testament era. In fact, in the plural in 2 Chronicles 8.13, mention is there made of these special feasts celebrating the new moons, plural, in which God wished His people to offer worship to Him. As you and I read the Old Testament, it isn't thus difficult to appreciate that God's people operated on a different calendar than you and I do today. It was a lunar calendar. It was a calendar based on the phases of the moon. They thus knew when the new moon arose, this was the time to start the new month, if you please. And as such, they were thus to worship on that new moon day, the first day of their month. Beyond that, you'll notice that Job apparently makes reference to what you and I today would call a lunar eclipse in Job 25.5. Isn't it amazing that as Job makes mention of those occurrences in which the moon is concealed, the moon is hidden... That particular matter, science now would call this eclipse. Isn't it fascinating Job could refer to that decades and even millennia ago? When you and I think about that particular lunar eclipse, may I submit that it thus becomes clear. Mankind has often found himself a worshiper of the moon. The Bible mentions that on many occasions. In 2 Kings 23, 5, as well as Jeremiah 8, verse 2, mention is made by God of how sad an occurrence it was when people would worship the moon, something that He had made and something which should testify of Him, but it was never intended for it to be worshipped. For that reason, in Exodus 20, as well as in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, we do read there that thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Our God is to be worshipped. Only He is awesome. Only He is great. Only He is thus worthy and appropriate for worship. All of these moon facts of the Bible, I hope have been enough to remind us that the moon does occur frequently and it's mentioned in the sacred scriptures. I mentioned earlier though about some lessons that you and I can extract from our study of the moon. May I submit that maybe it's time for the first one of those lessons. We can see almost immediately, if you make a listing of those verses in which the moon occurs, it seems as if a common lesson that His people were to learn was a lesson about the very faithfulness of God. It is that point that I would invite you to think with me about for at least the next few moments. When Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 makes mention of the creative work of God and what He put in place then, and how that that which has remained in place continues until this day, doesn't it maybe challenge us to think of it like this? That same moon that you and I see race across the night sky, David looked upon that same moon, Abraham looked on that same moon, Noah saw the same moon. Adam saw the same moon. And furthermore, based on what we learned a moment ago, they saw the same side of the moon that you and I now see. Doesn't that show us the faithfulness of the God who was able to orchestrate that motion for David and Adam and, yea, even Jesus the Christ while He walked upon earth? And you and I are still able to see not only the same moon but the same side of it. The fascinating character of that perhaps is this. 
Our God is always proclaimed to be faithful, isn't He? In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, the first three words of that verse are these, God is faithful. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse number 18, again, God is faithful. As you give thought to those circumstances and those matters in which His faithfulness is seen, maybe it all begins in Romans 5 8. God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is faithful in the love that He demonstrated to us, isn't He? It's one thing to say, I love you. But if you demonstrate that love to your husband or to your wife in such a way that that person not only has heard you say it, but they see it exhibited, they feel it manifested, they understand by the sacrifices that you make and by the activities of the day, that you really do love them. That's a deep-feeling love, and it's a love that's appreciated. God demonstrated His love. We have more than just His Word, as if that wasn't enough. His Son went to a cross and shed His blood, purchasing the church and putting in place the plan of salvation. And that is a timeless message of the love that He had. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. The marvelous reminder of 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15. When you think about the nature of that faithfulness, maybe that faithfulness is seen in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 on a daily basis. When you and I encounter and at least think about temptation, listen to this passage. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. We each understand that the tempter is a powerful foe. He is subtle. He is clever. He is mindful of the activities of your life and mine. He knows what your weaknesses and mine are. But may we never forget God is faithful. He will never, ever allow you or me to be tempted in such a way that we are unable to appreciate a way of escape and unable to bear beneath the nature of that temptation. He will not allow it. Wouldn't you and I be in a very dire circumstance apart from a promise like that one? It would then be easy in the face of temptation to say, But God, I can't. It is more than what I can defeat, and it is more than what I can bear. We know that there is no cause for such a statement as that, because we've been given the promise it will never be so. There's always that way of escape. May you and I, through the searching of the Scripture, appreciate its existence and seek to find it. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 9, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. The thoroughfare is found somewhere within the pages of the Word of God, isn't it? When you and I think of God's faithfulness, isn't it marvelous to appreciate that we serve a God described in words like this? In regard to His Son, it says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 verse 8. We don't serve a whimsical Lord who is one way one day and different the next who is inconsistent and unable to be described with consistency, He is as consistent as possible, isn't He? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Was it not said of God the Father in Malachi chapter 1 that He changeth not? 
How thankful we can be for a God whose love is consistent, whose mercy is ongoing, and whose graciousness abounds day after day for you and for me. So often we see in the human family such whimsical character. I'm often reminded of that scene, I'm sure as you are. As you think about a text like Acts, the 28th chapter, when you and I come to that particular chapter, the very last chapter in Acts, here Paul and his companions were shipwrecked. You recall they had ended up on the island of Malta. As they came aground on the island of Malta, the people who inhabited that island were excited. And in fact, they quickly regarded Paul and others as being those that were in a very dire circumstance. They were called murderers. They thought they had escaped justice. Somehow they had escaped the wrath of the sea. But you'll notice when that snake hung on Paul's arm, they thought, sure, Paul was guilty of something worthy of death. And so they proclaimed Paul a murderer. However, not more than a few minutes later, they called him a god. Here he was, one minute they thought he was worthy of death. Not many minutes later he was worthy of being called a God. How fickle is the mind of man. The God that we worship is much more steady, much more consistent, and much more absolute than that. May we always be thankful for a God like that. No wonder we're admonished in Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Isn't it delightful to know that we can turn our attention to a God who is faithful, who has promised to hear, and who not only will hear, but has promised to answer our requests. That kind of God perhaps brings us to another lesson. Not only is His faithfulness observed, but also His interest God's interest in you and in me. Many times, songs and other particular magazine articles have encouraged us to think that God exists at a far distance in this universe. In other words, He wound up the universe a long time ago and He went off into the chambers of heaven to watch at a distance and He really isn't involved in the daily matters of the universe or your life or mine. He is at best a distant observer, as if he's unconcerned, as if he's disinterested, as if he is aloof from the needs and the wants of your life and mine. Consider with me some of these thoughts, especially as prompted by that text in Psalm chapter 8. Verse number 3 of that chapter begins, When I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast made. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Pausing at that point, did you note the question? When David made this exclamation, God, when I consider the universe that you've made, and in particular the moon and the stars which I observe, they are grandeur, they are impressive, they are amazing to observe the harmonious way they move across the sky. And not only that, man can use them as a calendar. Mariners can use them to guide their way. When I consider all of that, what is man? What am I, a lowly sinner? And what are you? It prompted David to give serious reflection on who he was. And God was interested in him. 
I would hope we could explore that thought just a little bit more over the next few moments as we look at just a few of these verses. I have prompted it initially with this question. If God was so concerned about the orderliness of His universe that He could put in place the moon with a motion as carefully prescribed as the one that our moon has, if God could do that, is He not interested in you and you and me? Is it not said the very hairs of your head and mine are numbered? And God knows every one of them. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. God surely, if He could do all the former, is it not true He can do the latter? Jesus used that very thought in a way in Matthew chapter 6, didn't He? On that occasion He said, Who of you by taking thought can add one stature to His cubit? Or one cubit to His stature? Who among you is able to do that? All the while He made mention of the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and reminded all of us that God's in control of all of it. Maybe in light of that we could say this, you and I are far more important to God than the moon is because we are made in His image. As beautiful as it may be to look upon the moon and impressive as it may be to watch it, the moon does not have an eternal soul. It doesn't have an immortal spirit. It is not made in the image and likeness of God. It has no element of it to be either lost or saved eternally. But with regard to you and me, we do have an immortal spirit. In fact, you and I do have this soul that is so highly regarded in the sacred books of the Bible. It is for that reason that you'll notice there near the bottom of that slide that constancy is observed in passages like these. In Acts 17 verse 27, when Paul stood there in Athens and preached with such boldness, it was on that occasion that he himself said that it is God is such that you and I are made in His image. And we should appreciate that it is in Him that we live and move and have our very being. The moon ought to remind us of that truth. And the fact that it is true from Psalm 8 verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Are you and I mindful each day that God is mindful of us? He cares about us. He loves us. He wishes the best for us and He wants us to live in a wise fashion. It's not His desire that we live foolishly, that we live apart from the nature of His mercy and love. He wants us to not only know that, but to dwell day by day in the friendly confines of the hollow of His hand. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, we thus ought to appreciate that great gift that we do have. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Not only God's interest in us and not only His faithfulness. One last thing tonight about the moon. Many of those verses that we might consider studying the moon are really events that are great indeed. They are earth-shattering events. If I may describe it so, they are moon-shattering events. No doubt that this particular aspect of the moon has often been a matter of great interest in the Bible. What does God mean when He says the moon will not give her light? What does He mean when He says the moon will be turned into blood? That is found. Let's take just a moment and see if we can't cast the spotlight on some of those passages. We might begin by noting that each and every one of them make reference to a kind of figurative event, 
a figurative catastrophic event in which something great was to be overthrown and something else was to be put in place. Let's note what some of them are in passing. We might begin in Isaiah 13, verse number 10. Beginning in that particular verse and continuing for several verses thereafter, there is a very noteworthy description of a time in the ancient era. Among the descriptives given of it in that particular set of verses is, the moon will not give her light. I wonder what Isaiah was talking about. I wonder what event was it that Isaiah was describing in which it was said the moon would become darkened. The moon wouldn't give her light. As you can see, that was a reference to the destruction of the Babylonian regime. At that particular era and at that time, Babylon was the ruling power of the world. She appeared undefeatable. She appeared mighty and strong. No armies had been able to defeat her. However, God had an object lesson for His people and He wished Isaiah to make it plain. Isaiah, you tell my people that these ungodly Babylonians, they're going to be destroyed. And he described it in this figurative language as if the moon would be made darkened. You can imagine the figurative character and how this relates to that very first element I mentioned in the lesson tonight. The moon has been recognized as a part of the landscape here surrounding earth ever since the creation. The moon hasn't changed. The moon has not moved out of its orbit. It's been constant. Because of that constancy, this description is found. I know to you people of Israel, it looks like Babylon is undefeatable. It looks like there's no way they can ever be moved aside. But I'm telling you, it'll be as if the moon will be, become a state of darkness. That's the kind of earth-shattering event because Babylon's going to be destroyed. Babylon is going to be removed. That association perhaps leads us to the next one. In Ezekiel 32 verse 7, reference is made again to the moon becoming dark. This time the subject is not Babylon. The subject is Egypt. There was another power that was very mighty in the ancient landscape, that nation of Egypt. We recall that in fact the children of Israel often turned their attention to Egypt and hoped that Egypt would come and save them from Assyria. Jeremiah chapter 42 in fact makes a description of the people of God in fact packing their bags and getting ready to go to Egypt because they thought the army of Egypt could protect them. However, God through Ezekiel said, don't you know? Egypt can't save you. In fact, the moon will be turned into blood as a description of this figurative destruction of Egypt. They too will be overwhelmed. And they were in 609 B.C. Another example is Joel 2 verse number 10. This time the description is very different. Again, the moon will be turned into blood. You'll note here, not just darkened, it'll be turned into blood. I wonder what Joel was describing. Should you and I expect the moon literally to be turned into blood at some occasion? Or was this a figurative description of some other great event? It was another great event. This description that you and I appreciate was a matter of judgment upon not Egypt and not Babylon, but Judah. God's own people of Judah, He says, You too will meet the wrath of God because of your disobedience, and it shall be likened unto the moon becoming darkened. 
We notice also in Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus used this kind of description. In fact, as we read that chapter, and some have called that the single most misunderstood chapter in all of the book of God. We find in that chapter that it says in verses 29 to 34 about the sun and the moon being darkened, turned into that which has no light. I would submit to you that many have been the individuals who read that and see in that events that they think will literally happen at the end of time. It is not so. In verse 34 of that chapter, Jesus told us when that's going to happen. He said, all this shall happen in this generation. That eliminates the possibility of any reference to the end of time. This was a figurative reference to that powerful set of events that was going to happen when the Romans overran Jerusalem. In fact, all of that chapter, the first 34 verses of that chapter, are a description of the impending destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. That happened 40 years later, just as Jesus said that it would. You notice the moon was thus used to remind us one more time about the majesty and the figurative nature of these destructions. We'd be remiss not to mention Pentecost. Joel 2 verse 31 had said the moon would be turned into blood. And when we come to Acts the second chapter, Peter quotes that verbatim in Acts chapter 2 verses 16 and following and said, these are the events spoken of by Joel. The sun would be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. That notable day of the Lord had come. It was the day of Pentecost. The day the church began and the day in which the plan of salvation first began to be proclaimed and preached. The doors of the church were flung wide open that day and they've been open ever since. The sweetness of that event reminds us that's how... God's book describes it, a powerful reference to the moon being turned into blood as if this earth-shaking event happened, and it did. The old law of Moses had given way, as well as had the patriarchal era, to a new dispensation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of that perhaps brings us to one more, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, Reference is made to another appearance of the moon. This time the sixth seal had been opened. It was a momentous occasion when we appreciate the destruction that came along with it. And with the opening of that sixth seal, we see then that the moon did not give her light. In verse 17, we notice the judgment of God upon those not ready that they'd call for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. And the haunting question of verse 17 is this, Who shall be able to stand? The great day of God's wrath had come. The Roman Empire had met her doom and defeat, and so it shall be for every sinner. They too shall ask on that day, The great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? Isn't it thus true that the moon prompts you and me then to think about these three things this evening? To summarize them, they have been the following. The moon testifies not only of God's great creation, the consistency and the uniformity of it, and the fact that it is always beneath the control of God. We also have learned that it does testify of His faithfulness absolutely. 
Secondly, it shows us the interest He has in us. For just as David said, when I think of the moon and the stars, what is man that they aren't mindful of Him? Finally, these references to the moon being turned to blood or not giving her light does remind us that these great earth-shattering events, be they the fall of Babylon, the fall of Judah, the fall of Egypt, the coming of the day of Pentecost and the gospel ministration, these tell us that these earth-shattering events were so momentous that they were described in a figurative way as the moon not giving her light. You and I know that the last great such event is going to be the end of time. Are you ready for that? Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, to quote Proverbs 27.1. You and I know that that day is coming. We do not know when, but we know it's coming. It's a day described in 2 Peter 3 verses 9 and 10 as a day when, like a thief in the night, the earth shall be burned up and all that's therein. It'll be a day that we must be ready There will be no opportunity to get ready then, for in the twinkling of an eye, those that are alive will be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. May you and I with wisdom and with a great deliberation strive always to be prepared. And may we every time we look into the heavens and see that moon, may we be reminded of the need to be ready, the need to be prepared. Are you ready tonight? Are you prepared for that day of judgment? Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We each are marching toward the reality of death. It's not always the most pleasant thought, admittedly. But for those that die in the Lord, what a blessed rest it is. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Revelation 14.13 Tonight, if all isn't well with you, if you know that you're not ready to rest eternally, Make sure that you get yourself that way. The gospel plan of salvation tells us this. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself demands that you hear with interest and earnestness the blessed message of salvation. You hear the gospel. Paul preached it that way in Romans chapter 1. But not only must you hear it, you must believe it. And specifically to believe Jesus is the Son of God. John eight twenty four. Repent of the sins in your life as demanded of you in Acts 2.38. Confess His sweet name as the Son of God and the Lord of your life, that demanded in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. And then be baptized simply, humbly, buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If we could assist you in that way tonight, why not tonight? If you have become a Christian at some former time, but you have not been faithful... Every time you look at the moon, I hope it reminds you that you're currently not as you should be and that it will help teach you that you need to come to the God that loves you. Tonight, we could take care of that. We could pray for you and with you, and we'd be happy to do it. If you need to confess error in a public way, why not come forward? Brother Jeff has chosen this song of encouragement, and if we could be of any assistance to you, won't you, in fact, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.